Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis during his time as teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We desire to see all who are Christ followers grow in faith and maturity through the use of this podcast. Here's this week's message. It's great to be back from a vacation. It's great to see the ministry that goes on even when you're not here. And I have really enjoyed... uh, Seeing the singles step forward, you know, there's a much greater percentage in churches all across America of singles that are involved in the church, and uh, it's good to see these singles leading forth, and maybe you're here today, this morning as a single, and you're wanting a place to plug in. I want to recommend to you Change Point on Sunday evenings to get involved with our singles. It would be a wonderful place to step into our church, be a wonderful place to involve yourself and to meet new friends, uh, and to be encouraged. Singles are making up, as I said, this great percentage of the body of Christ today, but they're not the only group that's making an impact in the church today and even in our church. In fact, uh, there's a whole nother group that's beginning to emerge in the church nationwide, and it's a group that they call busters. Maybe you've heard that term, busters. It's what some call Generation X. It's an interesting generation that's coming up. Most of us are are aware of the term boomer, because that represents the majority of this particular body today. It's that huge generation of births that occurred right after the Second World War and continued up to 1965. It's a generation which sees the national spotlight during the the 60s. It's the generation that became the me generation during the 70s and uh, claimed that they were going to have it all during the 80s until they burned out. But they continue to throw their weight around to be the most influential group in society. If you look around, though, you you notice that our church, even now, is beginning to change. As you see the youth group up here leading worship, and now the singles group. And as I look around and see the host of young marrieds who are coming into our body, and a lot of those are called busters. They're a different group altogether with a different value system, and I want to make a few statements about them. They're the group that was born between 1965 and 1980. And the term buster is not just a age category. The term buster is a mindset. It's an attitude. A mindset that's much different than those of us who made up the beginning part of this body some years ago back in 1977. You know what I thought was interesting about busters is chief, the chief value among them is they do not want just talk. They're tired of talk. They're a generation that wants proof. You see, they're the generation that grew up under all the boomer hype and all the boomer frenzy. And though for a lot of boomers, they gained success out of that, for the busters, they felt it failed them. It failed them in their homes. You know, for every two busters, one of those grew up in a single-parent home. They didn't see mom and dad make it. They didn't see mom and dad get the good life though they may have gotten it to the good life personally for them, but in getting it for them, they left me behind. They failed me. They left me alone. I'm the kid that came home and had to open the door for myself because no one was there. They don't like that. They're the ones who graduated from college and was expecting the big job, but there were no jobs because all the boomers had it. So they had to work at the restaurant. They had to start at the bottom. They didn't like that. And all they saw was the national debt continuing to go up 
while the boomers frolicked, but they're going to have to be the ones that pay it off. That's how they feel about life. Kind of feel left out. They're the generation called X. And boomers may be impressed by quotes and statistics because it keeps fueling their nonstop optimism, but it doesn't impress busters anymore. You see, they are media aware. They know it's all a lot of hype. They know they've been sold a bill of goods. They know the belly buster really doesn't work even as the boomer puts it on his visa. Because they've been let down by that kind of thing. You can make a quote out of Time magazine, but it's not going to impress a buster. They've seen all those kind of quotes. You can hand a book to a buster and say, it changed my life, and they'll read the book. But until they see the life, they don't buy into any of that. It's just more hype. It's just more theory. They want to see what works. And if it works, then you got a buster's ear. Then they want to hear. Many busters are coming to church today not because they've become Christians. In fact, just the opposite. They're not Christians and life has failed them and they come to church, but they come to church to sit and to watch and to listen and to observe and they want to see hard reality. And I think probably if you're a buster today, you probably enjoyed what Ann had to say. And if you're a boomer, you didn't. You see, boomers want to just hear more optimism. But busters like the fact that a woman can stand up here and say, you know, we're not doing it. That's reality. And they already know reality and that resonates with their spirit. And they say, now that's somebody I can trust. That's some authenticity. That's somewhere I can get involved. Now, I say all this because we're about to look at a little epistle called James. You might turn there while I'm continuing this introduction. But James is an interesting little letter. And I want to start the letter this morning by asking you a question. Was James this half-brother of Jesus? Was he a boomer or a buster? It's a good question, isn't it? I want to read a few verses and then I'll let you answer it for me. For instance, look at verse 22 of chapter 1. I want everybody to read with me now. He says, But prove yourselves doers of the word <laughs> and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Look at verse 26 of chapter 1. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Look at chapter 2, for instance. Verse 15. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled. And yet you... Do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? Even so, verse 17, faith, if it has no works, is dead. It's dead. Look at chapter 3, verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show it by his good behavior, his deeds, 
in the gentleness of wisdom. Well, we've got a buster here, don't we? <laughs> He's a pretty powerful buster. In fact, I've got a better title for the book of James. You know, so many of the epistles are the epistle of James, the epistle of Peter. It's sometimes good. I like to just rub their name out and put their theme there. And if you want to do that this morning, you might just scratch out the epistle and scratch out James and call it this, the epistle of proof. Because that's what it is. It's the epistle of proof. It really brings it home and says, if you really believe this stuff, you will do this. And that's what makes it such a great letter. Now, I'm going to go back and pick up where Carl left off because Carl last week talked to us about our response to sufferings and trials. This morning, uh, the subject is really our response to temptation. Not so much as Carl talked about the unfortunate circumstances that come into our lives that surround us, but his subject now changes to the unholy pull that's going on within us. <laughs> it's different than what's on the outside. Now he's turning to the inside. And he's going to get to some hard stuff. Because these first verses here are going to introduce us to what's really going on when temptation comes knocking. And there are three important things we need to know when temptation comes knocking on the door of our heart. The first is we need to know who's who. Look how he starts out. He says, let no one say that he is tempted, when he is tempted, that he's tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Gosh, these are wonderful verses because it starts out by saying, let no one say, I am tempted by God. Have you ever said that? Have you ever said, God, why, why are you letting this happen to me? Those are the first things off your lips. Why are you letting this opportunity come up when you know it's going to hurt me? Why are you tempting me like this? Why have you put me here? Why have you given me this job in this department with these people so they could do this to me? Why have you done that? Why this now? Why her? Here? Huh? Why did you do that, God? This couldn't be just coincidence. This has got to be, in some way, you're doing, you're encouraging me to fail. You ever said that? Ever accused God of some kind of what I call uh, divine sting operation? Where the, the good guy sets up the good guy to be tempted so he can do evil? Have you ever said that of God? See, James says, no, you don't need to believe that. That's, good. That's, that's not who's who in this matter. That's a cheap way out. That's the old 90s victim mentality that's so prevalent all around us as people complain that it's you making me do it. It's your fault and it's your problem. Look at verse 13. He says, God does not tempt anyone. You might put in letter A, God is not the problem when temptation comes around. In fact, when temptation comes around, God's only involvement, according to the Scripture, is to keep whatever that temptation, and they don't have to be just the seductive kind, any temptation to panic, to disbelieve, 
God's only involvement in that temptation other than to be the deliverer is to make sure that that temptation does not get beyond that which you are able to handle. Do you know that? 1 Corinthians 10.13 says that with the temptation, God will come along and be faithful to make a way of escape that you may be able to endure it, not be overcome by that. God is not the one who orchestrates temptation. But there is one who orchestrates it. Temptations are not accidents. Don't ever think that. Temptations are planned. They're concocted, as the Scripture says, by an unseen enemy who loves to make a mockery out of your faith. He loves it. He loves to see you fall. He laughs all over himself when you take the bait. The fantastic book of Job is all about Satan going to God to get permission and God giving him permission, but not beyond what Job is able, but believing Satan, believing that he's going to make a mockery out of Job's faith. That's what it's all about. You know, years ago, the comedian Flip Wilson, who Bill Parkinson does a wonderful imitation, by the way, of Flip Wilson. <laughs> but Flip Wilson had that famous line, remember, the devil made me do it? Well, from a biblical standpoint, that's only a half-truth. The devil doesn't make you do it, but I think if you look in the Scriptures, you'll find the devil helps you to do it. He does do that. Look at verse 14. It says, but each one is tempted. In other words, he's being acted upon. He's being tempted. Now, it doesn't tell us who's tempting, but the rest of Scripture tells us who's doing the tempting. It's the evil one. It's the devil. And let me tell you, you need to understand He's so brilliant, and he knows you so well. He knows your Achilles heel. And if you'll just keep your eyes open, there'll be times in your life where you'll be standing in the midst of the situation that has been so well crafted to appeal to you at your weakest point. And you will know that's not an accident. But it's not from God. It's from the other side. Look at verse 14. It says, But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Now we go from the tempter to our half in the equation. It is the devil who tempts, but unfortunately, it is my lust that impregnates. It is the devil who tempts but is my lust that impregnates. And in this unholy union, sin is conceived. Do you see the imagery there? Sin is conceived. Look at verse 15. Then when lust has conceived, when the egg and the sperm, <laughs> it's a good sex talk here, come together, my lust and that temptation, it says that when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. All this is to tell us who's who in the midst of a temptation. When you're feeling pulled into the bar or into the bedroom or into unbelief or into pity or into a panic or into an illegal act, the suction is not from God. The black hole is the dark side of my own nature. It's me. And that's an awful thought. Now, I hate to hear that about myself, but James wants us to get it straight. 
It comes from us. You know, the pregnancy imagery that he's using here, it's a haunting kind of imagery. Because to me, when I see a woman who is pregnant, I think of something that is beautiful. Now, I know my wife never felt beautiful when she was pregnant. You know, she felt stuffed. But to me, it was a gorgeous thing. It's a, and it's a gorgeous thing to see a woman who's pregnant, this miracle of life taking place right in front of you. But you know what is horrendous? is to see someone who's pregnant with sin. See, I'm pro-life when it comes to sin, too. Because the sin doesn't start, as Jesus said, when the act goes into effect. The sin occurs at the moment of conception. Jesus said, don't believe it when they say you go out and commit adultery, and that's when you sin. I want to tell you when you sin, when you lust in your own heart. That's when it's been conceived, and that's when the sin takes place. And the effect is it just working its way out. And it's a terrible thing to see someone who has conceived sin in their own heart, especially a Christian, who's been full of life and full of worship and full of conviction, and now you're sitting at a restaurant and the whole effect has changed. They're pregnant. And they want a whole different meal because they've got a different appetite. So they sit there and they look at you and their face is hard. It's not soft anymore. Their countenances change. Their words have changed. Their words are no longer words of faith. They're words that seek to justify. There's no conviction there. The words are the words of compromise. And no matter what you say, you realize this person is horribly disfigured. They're blind. They have no eyes anymore as they talk to you. Have you sat with people like that? Maybe you've been there. Pregnant? It's a horrible thing to sit and talk to a person who's at full term because they want you to love the baby they're about to birth. And when you don't love it, then they become angry at you. And they will give birth eventually. And when they give birth, there will be a season of rejoicing. But James goes on to say, if you'll notice there in verse 15, it says, and when sin is accomplished, the word is, and when sin has grown up, when it finally grows up, it won't give that parent life. It will turn on them as a monster. Species. I've seen that advertisement. And it'll bring forth death. This analogy, by the way, has helped me to rethink the original sin of Adam and Eve. Because I've always thought of Eve being the one who sinned first, and then Adam gets the blame for that, kind of in going along with that. But you know, when you take this theology of James and go, go back into the story, the Genesis story, you begin to get a whole different effect where you can use your imagination to rethink the original sin. You begin to see in this conception of sin that perhaps really Adam did sin first even before Eve. Genesis 3, 6 tells us that when she was entertaining this dialogue of being like God with the serpent, that her husband wasn't off at work somewhere. It says her husband was with her. He was standing right there listening to this dialogue go on. And I believe that somewhere in this dialogue, Satan's, I mean, uh, Adam's lust for power moved him even before Eve, to take and conceive this lust for power. 
He was already there. And he became pregnant with sin while his wife Eve, according to 1 Timothy 2, was still sitting there in the dialogue, thoroughly confused, it says in 1 Timothy 2. She still wasn't quite understanding what was going on, but I think Adam was. And I think the minute sin was conceived in his heart, he began to do what every sinner does, to manipulate a way to make it work where he doesn't get hurt. Now let me just use my imagination Tell me, I tell you how I think that may have happened. Here he is, and he's already conceived the sin, and Eve's talking to the serpent. She's in dialogue still with him. And you know, when sin enters your heart, you immediately begin to do ugly things. What you begin to do is to manipulate, to set people up, to do things in a way that you won't get hurt, even if they do get hurt. And I believe Adam did that with his wife, and Adam knew that God had said, if you take this fruit, on the moment you take it, you're going to die. And so just get into Adam's manipulative mind for a moment. Here's his wife Eve talking to the serpent about eating the fruit. And I believe that Adam thought, well, I'll just have my wife Eve eat the fruit first. See, are you already there with me? Because if God strikes her dead the moment she eats that fruit, what can I do? The manipulator, the one who's got sin already conceived. I can go... Well, gosh, Eve, you shouldn't have done that. <laughs> Wasn't my fault, God. You see that? And so she probably turned to her husband, and he's already has forgotten how to love his wife as Christ loved the church. And she's thoroughly confused this dollar. She says, What do you think, honey? And can you see Adam just standing there and kind of going? <laughs> just kind of giving her okay, but not getting involved because he wants to keep his hands clean. So she takes the fruit. He's in a win-win situation as far as he thinks. And she takes the fruit and she eats. And she lives. She doesn't die immediately. She's not struck down. And so he eats and he thinks, I've done it. This is going to work. And God comes walking in the garden. And what does he say? You did it. And you're going to die. And he does. See, you never beat sin at its game. You may beat it for a moment, but when sin is fully accomplished, it always beats you and it always comes back and it delivers death at your doorstep. That's who's who when it comes to sin. God is not the problem. Let her be. God is the way out of the problem. Look at verse 17. It says, Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. God never changes. He's always good. From the very beginning, He was good. In the exercise of His will, verse 18, He brought you forth by the word of truth. It was Him, not you, that was trying to get you out of the mess. And He's never changed from that position so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits, the best among His creatures. How many of you have seen the movie Shadowland? Let me just see your... Hands. Okay, a lot of you have seen the movie Shadowlands. Uh, we saw that on vacation in Colorado, the movie about C.S. Lewis's love with his wife, Joy, the great Christian apologist. It was all focused there. And if you haven't seen it, I would commend you get that movie. It's a wonderful movie. But it's about his love life with his wife, Joy. And the minute they really fall in love, at the same time, there's this awful moment where they discover that she has cancer. And it's clear that it's terminal cancer. No, they, they, they try to avoid the awful reality of that. 
And it's obvious that the temptation for Lewis, this great Christian who used to preach so much on how suffering and pain develops one's soul before God, that now he must face not just the boomer mentality of theory, but the buster mentality of reality. And he's got to go through that with her. And so you see all that take place. And I'm sure the temptation throughout it all is to blame God. Why did you do this to me? Why have you brought me to this point? Why have you done this to us? Why are you tempting us with disbelieving you and blaming you and being angry at you? My whole focus is to shake your fist at heaven. And there's this particular, particularly poignant moment where he's in the attic. And he's sitting in front of the wardrobe, off of which the imagery of Narnia, that great children's series, is built. The wardrobe of magic. But there's no magic in the attic. There's only the awful reality of cancer. And a God who is. Who is. Who is what? And finally the heart breaks. God is good. And I can, I can draw on God to help me in this awful moment. To make it. And the wonder of that story is that God is good. And He did help Lewis to make it. Even in spite of that awful reality. When temptation comes knocking, you need to know who's who. <coughs> Secondly, you, know, you need to know what doesn't work. Let me tell you what doesn't work. Look at verse 19. He says, this you know. In the Greek, it's kind of a little different. It's, it's almost, take note of this. Don't, don't forget this now. My beloved brethren, let everyone be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Now, I think this verse is best taken in the context of temptation. So many times it's lifted out, but I think it's in this context of temptation. It's when, when trouble comes, when temptation comes, it's important to follow a formula. And the formula is you need to listen a lot more than you need to talk or get angry. Now, now we're going to reverse that, aren't we, in temptation? We're going to tend to get angry or talk a lot, but not to listen. But his, his warning is that we need to listen. When somebody is going through a troubling marriage, you know, what the, the, you know what the pattern usually is? The pattern is, is to keep relieving the pressure by talking. Call up somebody, can we get together? And we sit for hours at a breakfast spot talking about that person who's not doing what they need to do about our marriage. And we go on and on and we talk about how we've tried and they just won't work and it gets more and more hopeless. And then if the person turns on them, and begins to say to them, oh, yeah, I hear all that, but you know, you're probably not the guy you're painting yourself to be. And, and are you doing this and this? And you know what happens at that point? They start getting angry. And, and maybe, maybe because they love and respect you so much, they'll go do what you have to go do. But here's how I've seen them leave my office. It's with this look. Okay, I guess I'll have to do that. And I want you to look at the next verse. The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. 
They can leave and go back in the home determined to do it because you told them to do it and motivated not by the Spirit of God, but by the anger of their spirit to do it. But it doesn't work. It always fails because the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. See, often under the press of stress and temptation, we like to talk. We're quick to speak and quick to get mad. But what we don't hear in all that is the wonder of the Christian life, and that's the voice of God and the experience of God. Who alone can give us the energy to really meet that temptation in a way that not only solves the temptation, but helps us to grow up into the likeness of Christ? Are you hearing me on that? Does that make sense to you? Shake your head. Does it make sense to you what I'm saying? You're never going to make it when you're laying down at night about community or maybe Ann was talking and you thought about the learning center and you leave here and you go, okay, I'll serve. She got me. She nailed me. She made me feel guilty. enough. It doesn't work like that. That's not going out with the righteousness of God because it can only be born in here. But if it's not, any energy that comes forth is coercion. And at the end of your life, you may have a string of good deeds all by coercion. And those good deeds are set on the altar of Christ. And a match is taken to them and they burn. Because it's not godliness. It's compulsion. There's a difference between the two. That's why it comes to verse 21. He says, therefore, therefore, leads us to the third thing. That's what doesn't work. But when temptation comes knocking, therefore, here's some things that does. Verse 21, therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility, receive the word implanted, which alone is able to save your souls. There's two things in this verse that are on your outline I want you to take note of. The first is, when dealing with temptation, the first thing to do is just stop the obvious. <laughs> just stop the obvious. He says, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. Those are images of taking off a dirty shirt. Just stop the obvious. Remove, in other words, remove the things in your life that encourage and feed that temptation you're struggling with. Don't encourage the things that invite you to sin. Discourage those, at least the obvious things. For instance, if it's the crowd you run with who are constantly, as my kids say, bringing us down, you can do the obvious, change the crowd. That may not end all the temptation, but it has a big effect on that. If it's lust that you deal with, then have the cable company take out the movie channels. You can do that in a sane moment. You know, when, when you haven't fallen again and you're weeping on the floor, pick up the phone and say, Comcast, come over to my house and take them out. Just make it harder on yourself. If you're always overspending, if your visa, you know, is red hot, you know what you can do? Stick it in the oven and melt it. <laughs> Get rid of it. Make it hard on yourself so you can't pull out the plastic. Those are just obvious things. If you're tempted to give up in your marriage, then for God's sake, 
Don't keep pretending in front of people that your marriage is okay. Stop it. Have a pain to look. And let them know that there's problems there. See, when you stop the obvious, you put down earnest money when it comes to temptation. Before God, you do. You say to God, I'm really serious about dealing with this temptation. When you keep all those things around you and you don't stop the obvious, no matter how much you cry out to God, help me, deliver me, get me out of this situation as you keep putting yourself in it, God's not going to hear that. And He's not going to deal with that kind of duplicity. We've already learned that from Carl last week. In James 1, 6 and 7, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Let not that man or woman, to keep it good and gender, not biased, but equal, expect anything from God because they're not going to get anything. God won't deal with that kind of person. Stop the obvious. Secondly, prepare yourself for the not-so-obvious. And the not-so-obvious is that strange phrase, receive the word implanted. Receive in the original Greek language this epistle was written in was used of welcoming a friend who had come to your house after a long journey. And upon arriving at your home, knocked on your door, and you received that person in. You welcomed him in or her in. And I like that image because God has planted something within us. Implanted the Holy Spirit, the Scripture says. He lives within us, and whether you know it or not, He's speaking all the time. He's trying to lead and direct your life. But oftentimes the word's drowned out because we're too busy. He's knocking, but we can't hear because we've got so many things going on in our life. Our struggle is to figure things out ourselves without anybody's help. Or it's our pride or our stubbornness or our lack of availability. And so His voice that's in here speaking with Him this close to us all the time according to the revelation of the Scripture is going on. It's just we're not hearing it. It's we're not welcoming Him in. And that's why at times our lives are so spiritually weak. Because you know what cures temptation better than anything else after you stop the obvious? is not to hear from a friend, but to be quick to hear from God Himself. There's something about hearing from Him that goes beyond what any counselor or any friend can tell us. It carries such trust and authority at the same time to us. That's why Jesus said this in John 10, My sheep hear my voice, <laughs> and they follow me, and I give life to them. And if your world is a world of death, the problem is the receiver. There's a difficulty in hearing, and something's got to change that. And I want you to know, it's not going to change until you have time to spend in this book, until you're reading it and wanting to hear from it. Not just the words of Scripture, but then there are times where you're sitting there in quiet, thinking about it, meditating on it, in solitude, with a humble heart, saying, whatever you ask me to do, See, this is a scary thing to say. Whatever you ask me to do here, I'll do it. Have you ever been in church where somebody's preaching and they say something, and when you hear it, it is so clear. It's after the words, by the time they got to you, had a divine edge on them, and they came into your heart and hit you so hard, and you said, this is God speaking to me. Carry such authority. It's the only way those problems are going to be truly answered. You know... I have been tempted for a number of months to panic over a situation. I was telling a friend this this week, just panic over a situation. 
And I made all the mistakes that James talks about here. I tried to work it out on my own, tried to talk it out with others, tried to get upset about it, tried in my anger to make it work. It hadn't. Nothing's been resolved. And I'm so thankful that you have vacations every once in a while to kind of clear out your head. Because in those days, after things kind of settled down, there was a morning when I'm just sitting here thinking about this same situation. There's, I'm way far away. There's nothing I can do. But so I, I, I tend to want to listen at that point. And then there's in a particular moment of this particular vacation where I hear in my heart, as clear as you speaking to me, just the words, trust me. You don't need to panic. Just trust me. It's not a plea for me to come over and trust him. It's just trust me as if it's already done. And that's so freeing when you welcome that in in faith, when you receive the word implanted. Now, the situation hasn't changed since I've returned. It's still there, but I've changed. See, I've changed. I've received the word implanted, and it alone is able to save my soul. It's not so obvious. There's a third point. When you hear God's voice, it requires follow-through. Follow-through. If you sense God speaking to you at any point in time, whether you're in a worship service, whether a friend is talking to you and says something, and all of a sudden it becomes divine, don't let that word go. He's saying, follow through. Look at verse 22. Prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in the mirror. And once he's looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. Now, there are so many people who translate this as if the guy, it's one of these deals where you kind of glance at the mirror and go, and then walk off and you forget what kind of person you are. That's not what James is saying here. He's actually talking about a person who walks in, looks at a mirror, and really checks himself out. You know? He's really looking at himself. And then he goes out after all that time spent and forgets about himself. And you go, and see, here's the illustration. You go, well, that'd be stupid. How could he do that? That's the point. To spend an hour or an hour and a half sitting and listening and hearing God's Word and having two or three moments in the midst of that where you hear things that should change your life and then walk out of here and do nothing? That's the point. That's delusion. And yet so many people have grown up in the church where all that's required of the church is to come, sit, listen, and leave. And my Christianity's over. That's like a guy going in and looking at the mirror and really studying himself and he feels like he's okay, and right before he leaves, he's at this dinner party, he kind of smiles, and he's got this big piece of meat right there. You know, just a big, huge black piece of roast beef. And then he goes, he looks at himself and figures all that out, and then goes out to the dinner party and just smiles at everybody for the rest of the night. You'd say, that is absolutely stupid. But you know what? It is stupid to sit here and listen to the Scripture. And listen to the Word of God and see that big, giant, black piece of spiritual roast beef in your teeth and walk out here and smile the rest of the week. That's the point. He says, that's death. But look at verse 25. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, 
and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man shall be blessed in what he does. And I think there's a threefold blessing that's here. Let me just mention them to you briefly as we close. First, you will escape the temptation itself, which is the immediate problem, but that's not all of it. Secondly, you will experience God by preparing your heart, by taking the time to listen, by being quick to hear, you have learned that the real Christian life is not one of talking. It's not one of just being around your friends. It's one of listening to the God who lives in you and learning the secret of the inner directed life. And thirdly, you will add another portion of the righteousness of God to your character. See, when temptation comes knocking... The goal is not just to resist, not just to get by. It's to become like Christ. It's to be transformed. It's to become different. These are wise words when temptation comes knocking on the door of your life. Let's pray. And Father, we pray this morning that you would help us. I'm sure that there's not a person here in this room that somewhere in the midst of this hour didn't say to themselves before you in the inner part of their life, I've got this temptation and I'm hearing. And now I pray, Lord, that you would help them with a word to go and to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.